We're so, so thankful uh, to have you guys here. Thankful to have those joining us online as well. And uh, I'm excited to start into a new uh, teaching series today. Uh, so if you guys have your Bibles, would you guys open up in them with me to First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1. And uh, I see so many of you uh, flipping in your Bibles right now, uh, which is so encouraging. I say that jokingly because not many of you are. And uh, so what we're going to do the next couple of weeks is uh, we're going to change things up a little bit. Uh, we typically put scripture verses on the screen uh, to make it easier for you. But what I'm realizing is that we might be allowing you to be a little bit lazy uh, in your pursuit of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to start having fewer verses on the screen. But what I want to encourage you to do is bring a Bible. They have these physical things like this right here. It has pages. It has paper. Uh, you guys know what that is? So I want to encourage you guys to bring one. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we will be glad to give one to you. Uh, we have a couple of free copies. That would be our gift to you. So next week, just heads up, bring a Bible with you. And yeah, you can have it on your phone. Um, that's a possibility as well. Um, you know, whatever is going to help you get into the Word of God. Um, I, so I want to help you guys grow. Um, so don't, I know you guys look looking at me like, oh man, we want it on the screen, but uh, trust me, uh, bring your Bible. Uh, it won't hurt you. And um, they make them, they look really fancy and nice. So go and bring a Bible with you guys next week. Cool? Those of you online, uh, you guys have no excuses either. So there you go. Um, I heard two people say cool. Awesome. So uh, is that a shocking thing for a pastor to say, bring a Bible to church? I don't, it should not be. It should not be. All right. Um, so open up to First Peter uh, chapter 1. And what we're going to do uh, the next couple of weeks, uh, this series that we're starting today is like our fall anchor series. We're going to spend the next eight weeks uh, studying the book of First Peter. And what I want to do for you, especially as we kick off this new season, uh, I believe that your faith needs a framework. Um, your faith needs a framework. A train needs some tracks to run on. And your faith needs some kind of a framework to help it grow. And so I want to give you some challenges the next couple of weeks to help you get your faith uh, kind of on track for this fall season. So the challenge for the next eight weeks is that you as a family, or whether a single, whatever it is, that you would have a weekly time of family worship. What that means is that you might come here. Maybe this is your time of worship. You'd have a weekly, regular time of getting together and worshiping God. Maybe it's this. Or maybe if you're not here, maybe you're online or maybe you aren't able to come, that you would at some point sit down, read the Bible, pray, and maybe have some worship, some worship songs together as a family. I know whenever my family, whenever we're not here, we're either at someone else's church. Uh, last Sunday, I had the privilege to go to my brother's church in Romeo. And uh, whenever we're not able to be at a church, we will sit down as a family and I'll read some scripture, we'll pray, we'll sing some songs, we'll have what we call family worship. That is a great weekly rhythm that I want to challenge every single one of you to have. Um, so the next eight weeks, once a week, family worship. Sound good? All right. My wife said yes. All of you, all the rest of you. All right. Yeah, Rosalie would have, but I, I uh, made fun of her earlier. So. All right. First Peter chapter 1. And um, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to read uh, from this passage. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us in the next uh, little while. God, I know there are so many barriers in our minds right now. I, 
I'm so thankful for each person who's in this room. We have all come for different reasons. We're all going through different things. But I just happen to believe that you are good enough, God, to speak to each one of us in our situation. God, whether there's young people in the room, which I'm so thankful that there are, uh, to whatever stage of life we're in, God, if we're listening and if we're leaning in, I believe that you will say exactly what we need to hear. It may not be what we want to hear. It may not be what we expect to hear, but we will hear exactly what you want us to hear. So please use my words and your word um, and change us. We believe that we'll walk away different. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said together. Amen. Amen. All right. First Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you guys to do something with me. This is for your good. I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me. If you're able to, uh, if you're able, please stand. Those of you watching online, you guys stand as well. Um, put in the comments. I'm not sure what you say in the comments, but anyway. Uh, stand. Just say, I'm standing, and then we'll know that you are. Uh, I'm going to read uh, from this, and I, I want you guys to just take this in. So what the early church would do, what the church in the first century would do, is that the New Testament... Um, and the Old Testament were written on scrolls, and people like myself, religious leaders, would stand up in front of a gathered group of people, and they would read a passage. And First Peter is a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter, we'll learn about him in a second, and it was meant to be distributed and read among churches. So here we are, a Christian church, 2,000 years later, we have the privilege of hearing uh, from, from God's word together. So here we go. Uh, First Peter, I'm going to be reading from a translation known as the New Living Translation. It's a little bit more readable. It will be on the screen for you. You're welcome. All right. So First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May, the God, may God give you more and more grace and peace. Somebody say amen to that. All praise to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power. Till you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead. Somebody say amen to that too. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ Jesus is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you've never seen him. Though you don't see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible 
joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your soul. Doesn't sound too bad. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's sufferings and his great joy, great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And it's all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. All right, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you for doing that. So this is the the first passage that we're going to look at. But I want to do my best to set the scene for the whole series that we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks. Right? This is going to be a relationship we have with the book of 1 Peter. So we're going to slow down a little bit. And we're going to get to know the book a little bit. And so, quick question, who is it that wrote the book of 1 Peter? Peter, all right? They're not very creative. It's like Peter wrote, he said it in in verse 1, this is Peter, an apostle. An apostle means a disciple, or there's the original 12 apostles, those that were closest to Jesus. But what do we know about Peter? Let's talk about Peter for a second, the author. Um, Whenever you get something from somebody that is really important to you, that has more weight to it, doesn't it, than something that you get from somebody you don't know? Uh, for example, I'm getting a lot of political texts and phone calls these days. Anybody else? And I'm like so eager, like, oh, wow, another one. Yay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I quickly block those numbers uh, because I don't care to hear from those people. I don't know who they are, right? But if I get a text message from my wife or my mom or my dad or my daughter's, uh, I dare not block that number, um, right? I want that, that message gets put to the top of the pile. That's an important message, right? So when the recipients of this letter get this from Peter, it goes on the top of the pile because of who Peter is. Let's talk about who Peter is for a second. Peter is one of the 12 disciples that spent time with Jesus. But not only that, within the 12, Jesus had a few that he was closest to, and that was Peter and James and John. So he had a closer relationship, and Peter is one of those people. In fact, the, the Gospel of Mark, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that wrote an account of Jesus' life. The Gospel of Mark, we actually believe that Peter was the author of the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of confusing, right? Well, it says it's Mark wrote it. The reason we believe that is because Mark was a scribe and an attendant of Peter's. So the Gospel of Mark is written through the vantage point of Peter in the, in the hand or the pen of John Mark. Make sense? So it really could technically be called the Gospel according to Peter. It's the life of Jesus through the lens of Peter. Isn't that cool? It's actually the earliest Gospel as well. The other Gospel writers use it as a text source. That's why some of the Gospels have very similar stories in them because they were drawing upon one another to remember what they had experienced and seen and heard. So this is Peter. Uh, A.W. Tozer uh, describes Peter as a bundle of contradictions. Uh, Peter's life is typified by all-out intensity, sometimes uh, impulsiveness, not thinking about things. But in one minute, uh, Peter's declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. 
right? And I will die for you. The next minute, Peter is denying Jesus, and Jesus calls him uh, Satan. Um, there's a little bit of a contradiction there. <laughs> Peter is a bundle of contradictions. He's like a spaghetti web all, all in his, his life. You know, he just, he's, he's complicated. Peter is complicated. Um, it's Peter who actually gets out of the boat and walks on the water with Jesus. None of the other disciples ever did that. Um, it's Peter who uh, at the Last Supper says, Jesus, I will never deny you. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane together where Jesus prays and armed guards come to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter pulls a sword, which by the way, how cool is that? That Peter is following Jesus and he just happens to have a sword in his tunic. He's, he's packing, he's carrying at the moment, all right? So they're in the garden, and this is Peter. This is the, the boldness of Peter. A guard, an armed guard comes to arrest Jesus. Peter pulls out his sword, and he swings, and he misses, and he cuts off the guy's ear. He didn't miss by much, did he? He cuts off the guy's ear. Jesus is like, uh, Peter, I appreciate the thought. <laughs> this is not exactly how this is going to happen. He picks up the ear, and he puts it back on the guy's head. It's like, wow, crazy, right? But this is Peter. The same Peter, though, hours later is approached by a little girl and says, hey, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? And Peter's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that ear thing, that wasn't me, <laughs> right? <laughs> but this is Peter. He's all over the place. And so when Jesus is crucified, Peter is overcome with guilt and shame and says, how could I ever, you know, overcome this, this thing in my life and my past? So he goes back to fishing, which is what he knew. But Jesus uh, comes to him. The resurrected Jesus comes to Peter and reinstates him and forgives him. And Peter becomes one of the greatest leaders in the early church in the first century. Um, it was Peter who was the first of the male disciples to see the tomb of Jesus empty. Peter and John were both running. John says uh, that Peter outran him. Peter got to the tomb, well actually John got to the tomb first, but Peter's the one that, that ducked his head in and looked and saw that the tomb was empty. And so it's Peter that rises up as a leader in the first century to the point where he's willing to give his life for real this time. Um, Peter preaches about Jesus, thousands come to faith in Christ, this is Peter. Peter's arrested by Roman authorities because he's preaching about Jesus. They said, we have no real charge, but we just don't like that you're stirring people up to follow Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to flog you, which in case you don't know, um, we're going to take off your shirt, your tunic. We're going to get a leather whip. We're going to rip uh, shreds into your back. We're going to rip um, your flesh. Once your back is, is ripped enough, we're going to flip you over and, and do this on the front up to 39 times uh, because they think that 40 will kill you. And that's just the warning shot. That's just like, hey, don't do this anymore. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter's like, I'm sorry, I have to. The only way you can explain a transformation like that is that Peter saw the risen Savior. That Peter saw Jesus alive. And it was just years later, um, after Peter had written this letter to the churches, uh, where the Roman emperor Nero, most likely, had Peter arrested and waves of persecution were happening against Christians. Nero was so terrible, Nero as a Roman emperor, was so terrible that he would round up Christians either to be killed in the Colosseum 
or to be impaled on large sticks to light his garden. This is well documented in antiquity, that he would take Christians, he would impale them on huge wooden posts in his garden and set them on fire at nighttime so that he would have light in his garden. So Peter um, is arrested by Nero, and his time to be crucified is coming. But as he's being crucified, he pleads with those who are killing him, please don't crucify me in the same way that Jesus was crucified. He convinces them to turn his cross upside down, and he's crucified upside down with the blood rushing to his head. This is Peter. So when this church gets a letter, when these churches get this letter from Peter, they're leaning in. Do you understand? Like They're like, what is Peter saying? And what Peter goes on and rehearses in these verses that we just read, here's the main theme of the book of Peter. Trials are coming and in fact are here, but take heart, there is joy ahead. See, the Christians in the first century, they had a rough go of it. They were in, they, they were, what they would consider, they were exiles, they were foreigners. They didn't feel like they fit in very well. Because of their beliefs, they were outcasts, and they were persecuted. This is the audience of, of the letter, the recipients of the letter. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to answer three questions. First question is, why are there trials now? Second question is, why should we take heart? And the third question is, what should we do? We're going we're to unpack these verses that Peter gives us in this first chapter. So why are there trials now? What is Peter's argument for why we're experiencing difficulty right now? Because I don't think any of us say, wow, this is amazing. I love hardship. Right, I love, anybody say, I love 2020, hashtag love 2020. <laughs> love in 2020, nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying I love school delays, I love virtual school, I love blah, blah. No one's saying that. We recognize, like, this is not fun, so why are there trials now? I'll give you two reasons. Number one, Peter is making the argument that this is not our home. That you and I are foreigners in a strange land especially as Christians, we will be considered strange because of the values that we hold. In the first century, it wasn't any different. They, had, they held values as followers of Jesus that, that ran countercultural to the, the first century. In the first century, they were stingy with their money, but Jesus calls Christians to be generous with their finances. In the first century, they were very loose sexually, but Jesus calls Christians to maintain sexuality uh, for marriage. It doesn't sound a whole lot different than what the challenge is in our culture as well. We're called to be different, to be strangers in a foreign land. So he's got, you're going to face trials and, and difficulties because this is not your home. If you feel out of place sometimes in life, it's simply because you are out of place. In fact, I would say that if you don't feel off, then something's off. If this feels too much like home, like, man, I just want to stay here forever, then your focus might be in the wrong place. Peter said you're going to feel a little bit off because this is not your home. Um, it sometimes feels uh, like we're wearing someone else's clothes. Sometimes life feels like you're wearing, have you ever, 
that's maybe a weird question. We'll try a different analogy. Have you ever driven someone else's car? You get in the car. I love those cars that have the memory button where it just has like two programmable like seat positions. Um, we don't have one. Our next car hopefully will have one. Well, you can get in, just press the button because uh, I'll get into our, our uh, sport van, our orange sport van. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Ray Lynn drives that one usually. And I'll get in and my knees just cram against the dashboard. You know, and I have to go through the calculation in my head. How long am I going to be in the vehicle and is it worth it to make all the adjustments? You understand what I'm saying? So there's not only the seat you have to adjust, there's the steering wheel to adjust. And if I, I, I probably should adjust the rearview mirror because that's pretty important. If I'm getting really thorough, I'll adjust the side mirrors, all right? But that's kind of what life feels like. It's like we're driving someone else's car. And Peter's just saying it's going to feel that way because that's what it is. This is not our home. He refers to those he's writing to as, as exiles who are scattered and strangers. Uh, it really just means exiles who are living far from home because that's the idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that this is not our home. This is not our home. Now, occasionally, which is beautiful, we have the privilege of gathering together like this and online, and we get to taste a little bit of what heaven is like, don't we? What I love about this and what I love about what God does when he invites people to a family is he breaks down all the barriers. Right? Culturally, there's lots of wars and lots of things going on right now, but in Christianity, in the family of God, uh, those barriers are broken down. Where What we have in common is not what political party we're a part of, or what color our skin is, but what we have in common is that we have Jesus in common and that we have a common father together. Isn't that, isn't that right? Isn't that cool? It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter who you're voting for or how much money you have or don't have. Um, God erases all of those um, in Jesus Christ. So we get to experience that together, but we don't experience it all the time. We're not where we're meant to be yet. That's the first reason that we have trials here. Number two, then, is this, is that our faith is being tested. Our faith is being tested. Jesus isn't interested in fake or phony followers of him. If Jesus had wanted to, if I was running Jesus' ministry campaign, um, Jesus wasn't trying to gather followers. Jesus wasn't trying to, to have the most followers on Instagram or social media. He didn't care about those things. Oftentimes, Jesus would gather crowds together, then he would preach really hard sermons. Why? Because he didn't want somebody to casually follow him. It's damaging to that person to think that, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, when they're really not a follower of Jesus. So he would, he would challenge people. And in his most famous sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, he even talked about this. He said, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these amazing things in your name? But he'll say, I never knew you. Like, you may go to church and you may call yourself a Christian, but do you know God? Like, do, you, do you follow Jesus? It kind of reminds me of that song, um, you put your left foot in, you put your left foot out. Is this a bad analogy? Should I not go here? <laughs> Rosalie's like, Josh, don't do it. No, don't. But at the end, it starts, it finally says, you put your whole self in. Right? It's kind of that idea that at some point you've got to put your whole self into it. And it, may, it probably won't even make any sense until you come to that point where you finally do put your whole self in. Are you truly following Jesus? Your faith will be tested. So why should we take heart? What does Peter say 
as reasons why you should take heart. And there's two reasons. Number one, that the struggle that we go through is making us stronger. He says this faith is being tested and purified. It's being tested and purified. Your faith is purifying you. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, and through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation. I oftentimes fall into the trap and think that if it's true, it will be easy. People fall into this, this myth of this trap in marriage. If, I, if it was the right person, it wouldn't be a struggle. I'm sure you've never thought that. Uh, we, we think that whatever the easiest path is, that that must be the right path. And most of the time, it's the opposite of that. That anything that's worth anything is going to take hard work. And it's the same thing with our faith. I fall into the trap sometimes going, oh man, I, just, I find myself complaining in my, in my heart to God. Like, this is so hard. I don't want to do this. Is it okay for me to admit sometimes I don't want to be a pastor? Is it okay for me to admit sometimes, like, I just, I, I even struggle, so I just, I don't want to follow Jesus right now, because it gets hard sometimes. Uh, pastors are people too, all right? I didn't want to burst any bubbles, but, but God just reminds me, it is going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. That's what the book of, book of First Peter is about. Hey, don't give up. Don't give up. Hold on. Stay strong. It's going to be challenging. Um, author Levi Lusco uh, he said, what is faith if not a filter that allows you to process your experience through the goodness of God? That's what faith is, right? Faith is like, this is hard, this is frustrating, but I'm going to choose to filter this situation through the goodness of God. I don't like what's going on, but I'm going to choose to put on those glasses that filter this, that look at this through the eyes of faith, that God is still doing something and that he is good. Levi Lusco also said, worry is simply faith in the enemy. Ouch. When I first heard that, that stung a little bit. That when I'm full of worry, I'm just simply putting faith in the enemy and not faith in God. So the struggle is making you stronger. It's a fight. You've got to fight. Number two, then our true reward is yet to come, Peter says. So let me unpack that for a second. For, for several decades in the, the history of Christianity or the history of the Christian church, the message was, the predominant message was um, give your life to Christ or follow Jesus for the fire insurance. You guys know what that means? Uh, if you die and you don't know Jesus, you're going to go to hell and there's fire there <laughs> and you don't want to go there. So many people are like, sign me up. I want, I want some fire insurance. We recognize that that's not uh, the whole gospel, right? The, go the whole gospel is that God loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. Yes, there is eternal punishment for our sins, but God has provided a way for us. And so the message has then become, accept Christ because he's going to make your life better right now. And there are some elements to that, right? It's like, yes, when you say yes to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, he will, he will give you true joy and true peace that's not dependent upon how much money you have, what kind of car you drive, or who, you who you're with. It's amazing what Jesus does in your life when you follow him. Can somebody say amen to that? Um, so that's, so when you choose to follow Jesus, yes, God blesses you and your life, but what Peter's reminding us is that's just, that's just part of the reward of following Jesus, and I think we have forgotten to talk about the fact that 
those who endure to the end, or those who persevere in their faith, there is even greater reward that is eternal. Peter says, you are now part of the inheritance of God that doesn't spoil or fade or doesn't change or decay. It doesn't follow the S&P 500. <laughs> this inheritance, this, this uh, 501k plan, 501k, 401k? 501, where'd that come from? <laughs> it's even better, right? It's even better. This is a 501k, I just made that up. I gotta get back on track. <laughs> I'm like, where did that, I don't even know where that came from. I'll have to dive into that later. But this is eternal, that, that there's, there's the joy of following Jesus now, but there's also a greater reward to come. To those who endure, they will experience complete redemption total justification. Jesus uh, was, this is a great example um, from the life of Jesus. So Jesus, uh, as he was um, ministering and spending time with his disciples, he would basically train them and teach them how to pray with people and, and what to do. And he would send them out and they would come back and they would report what, what they had done. So they come back one time and they're all excited. They're like, Jesus, we just had the most amazing day of ministry. We got to pray with people. We got to see people healed. Uh, there are people who had demons. They were demon-possessed. We prayed, and the demons even obeyed us. And Jesus was like, all right, kudos, high fives, like all around. That's great. He says, but don't get too excited about that. He said, I want you to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus is giving them perspective. Like a day of ministry sounds, sounds pretty amazing. Like, if I could walk away from a Sunday afternoon and be like, hey, Dad, guess what? We had 5,000 people at our church today. Yeah, it was 30 services, but we had 5,000 people at our church today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I would, just, I would, like, take a nap, and, like, that would be fantastic. But Jesus would be like, hey, that's great, Josh, but what you should really rejoice in is that your name is written in heaven. That's what he's saying. So there's a greater reward. There's a greater perspective that outweighs and outshines the trials that we face here. So take heart, because our true reward is in heaven. We can only imagine what that will be like. All right, so those are the first two questions. Why are the trials now? Uh, why should we take heart? Third question is, what do we do? I'm going to give you two pieces of encouragement and advice. Number one is to hold steady. That's one of the messages of the book of First Peter is hold steady, let nothing move you. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, say it with me, what does it say? Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul gives some other encouragements. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. You guys notice how he says stand several times in there? Stand your ground. Stand your ground. Um, in Michigan and in lots of states, uh, there's typically what they would call a stand your ground 
law. Anybody know what that, that law means? Uh, basically means that if someone is threatening you, you have the ability, you have the right to stand your ground. That you can protect yourself, you can defend yourself. It's called the stand your ground law or principle. How cool would it be if we adopted as Christians a spiritual stand your ground type principle? That when circumstances are seeking to discourage us, that we'd say, hang on, I'm not going to let you uh, push me around. I'm not going to let you move me. Um, I notice a pattern in my life. Um, if I allow myself to, uh, to um, feed on too much um, news or social media, uh, for me, and other people have different abilities, uh, but it, 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 um, it discourages me. I get angry. Like I see some of you interacting on social media, and not you guys, I see other people interacting on social media. <laughs> and uh, just, you know, I'm watching, I'm watching. Uh, but I see people, and it's just, it's just discouraging, right? It's like these people are fighting about this, this issue, and these people are bickering, complaining, and fighting about these issues. And it's just like, ah, uh, I, I just get discouraged. I just get angry. And what that does is it throws me off of my game when God has called me to follow him. God has called me to, to shepherd and lead my family. God has called me to keep my eyes focused on him, and instead I'm over here uh, stewing and getting frustrated about other stuff. And I have to recognize I can't let that move me anymore. I have to stand my ground. And I have to, I have to hold my faith. And I love what Peter does in, in, in uh, this, the whole book of 1 Peter, actually. He uses Jesus uh, continually as a reference. He keeps pointing back. And one of the reasons we have hope, one of the reasons we have, um, have joy ahead is because Jesus is alive. Because we have a living hope that Jesus is alive. And if you look at the, the life of Jesus, there's kind of like a, an, an analogy there, a metaphor there that I think fits our lives very well. If you think about Jesus' ministry for three years, um, God did so much um, through Jesus. But then the end of Jesus' life, um, it begins to look very tragic if you don't know the rest of the story, right? Um, the week, his last week of life, uh, crowds are cheering Hosanna, you know, they're, they're cheering, you know, wel they're welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem. They're all on Jesus' side. Then Thursday, uh, cancel culture sets in big time. You guys think we're the first ones that have cancel culture. And the same crowds that said, I'm just trying to show that I'm relevant. Is that working? <laughs> no? Okay. <All> right. <laughs> Rosalie gave me that look. She's like, <laughs> she's like no. Uh, Thursday, it's, but it's not that much different. Thursday, the same crowds who were saying, you know, Jesus is amazing. We're now saying crucify him. And so Jesus gets hung on a cross, dies, and the world goes dark. Can you imagine what that season would have been like for the disciples? Right? Can you imagine the, the, the challenge and what that would have felt like? And I love thinking about this, but Friday is the, the tragedy of Jesus' death on the cross. Sunday is the joy of the resurrection. But most people don't think about Saturday and the deafening silence of Saturday. When all seems lost, when everything seems hopeless, when they are just waiting, and they're good, faithful Jews. They took Jesus' body down off the cross on Friday uh, before 6 p.m. when the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath begins. They can't do any work on the Sabbath. They take his body down 
They put him in a borrowed tomb, and they don't get to do all the burial stuff that they want to do to prep his body to be buried. So they put him hurriedly in a tomb, and they're sitting there Friday night, Saturday, like just the, the, they're, they're wa- watching the watch and the time, and it's just going so slow. Can you imagine, like just the, the, the despair of Saturday? They get up Sunday morning not to go see an empty tomb. That's not what they were expecting. They get up Sunday morning to go finish the job of burying their friend and what they believe was their Savior, Jesus. So for them, all hope is gone. They go to the empty, they go to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. Instead, they find an empty tomb. And then they experience the resurrected Christ, the next 40 days um, over a period of time and in many different ways. That's kind of an analogy for our lives and what God does in our lives, right? We have to keep that in mind, that, that Friday we have difficulties and tragedies. Saturday things can be very lonely and quiet, but Sunday comes. Dawn is coming, right? There is this moment when God comes into our lives and uh, restores and brings joy. We have to keep having that hope. There is joy ahead. So hold steady. Let me give you the last thing is this. We see this really uh, interesting verse, a couple of verses in, uh, in the fir- passage that we read. Here's the, here's the main idea that we're encouraged to think about Jesus. Like, why well, I, I do think about Jesus. I'm at church. We're thinking about Jesus. We sing songs about Jesus. Jesus, 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 right? But here's what it says. Here's what Peter says in verses 8 and 9. It says, though you have not seen him, who are we talking about? When in doubt, say Jesus in church. That's <laughs> when in doubt, 99% of the time. Though you have not seen him, who are we talking about? Jesus. All right, you love him, same, same him, all right? Even though you and I have not seen Jesus physically, we love him. And even though you don't see him now, Jesus, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So takeaway is to think about Jesus. To think about Jesus. Dwell on Jesus. Consider the sacrifice of Jesus. Consider the life of Jesus. Consider the character of Jesus. Imagine, picture Jesus. Uh, one of the things I do when I have trouble falling asleep at night, um, my mind is just busy sometimes, and uh, my, my dad actually, you know, when I was a kid, he would say, because you know, kids have trouble going to sleep, he would say, just think about something good, just, just think about a fun past memory, and um, I try the same thing with our, our daughters, and sometimes it works, right, Annabelle? Okay. So one of the things that I think about, uh, a couple years ago, um, our church had a golf league, and so I don't golf a whole lot. I'm a, what you call a social golfer. I go golfing to hang out with people. Um, I'm not a great golfer, but I enjoy it every once in a while. So, but during the golf league, um, I started to be able to work out some of, the, some of the deficits in my golf game. Like I have a really bad slice. So instead of getting rid of the slice, I just aim really far left, and the ball eventually makes it back, um, hopefully. But on one glorious day, I shot the round of my life. Uh, par is usually 36 for nine holes. I shot a 38. Come on, give it up. That's, yes, yes. 
Uh, so when I'm having trouble going to sleep, and I'm not sure if women do this or not, but I know that guys, guys, many guys do this, they will think through some kind of vic- victory that they have had in their life <laughs> when they triumphed and when they stood on top of the hill, and they will rehearse that over and over and over again. So I will go through all nine holes in my head. I still have that on recall. And uh, here's, here's where I shot this shot, and I can, literally can do just about every single shot um, of that round of golf. <laughs> all right. Uh, I feel really, really uh, vulnerable right now. I just shared something <laughs> with you. But. Um, what, what Peter is saying, though, is I want you to dwell on Jesus. How often do we sit down and just consider the glories of our Savior, Jesus? I want you guys to do this for a second. You guys at home can do it as well. I want you guys to just close your eyes for a second. And I want you to picture Jesus. And we don't know exactly what he looked like. Uh, but we do know some things about him. We do know his character. We do know his love. We do know his grace. I think as you, you're going to have some difficulty if there's pain in your life right now, but I want to encourage you to look past the pain and just simply look at Jesus. That he is your savior. He is the one who died on the cross for you. He is the one full of grace and full of truth. He is the one that looks past your past and past your mistakes and past your weaknesses. So consider Jesus. And what Peter is saying is that as we think about Jesus, it leads to an inexpressible and glorious joy. What it should produce on your face or in your life is, is a, a radiant, sen- a smile. Um, I heard, I heard an um, author say that no one ever looks at the face of Jesus and is disappointed. No one ever looks at the face of Jesus and walks away disappointed. He is, your, he is what you need. He is your mercy. He is your grace. You guys can open your eyes. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, 8, and 9 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I want to close uh, with this. What I don't want to do today is I don't want to give you the impression and I don't think that First Peter gives us the impression that what God is saying is things are really bad now, but hold on because heaven's going to be awesome. Um, that's sometimes the message that can come across, which sounds great, but what do we do right now? <laughs> it's like, you want me just to hold on for the next, you know, 50 to whatever years it is? That's not the message of, of what we're talking about. When we talk about dawn is coming, um, dawn, the word dawn can be looked at in two different ways either as a noun or as a verb. As a noun, dawn is a time of day, right? It's like in the morning when the sun's coming up, that's dawn. Or you can use dawn as a verb, right? It dawned on me. And I think we can look at it both ways, that there is a future dawn that is coming. Like we know that God is is going to bring joy down the road, but what about right now? I think what God wants to do right now in your life is he wants to have things dawn on you. 
He wants to have things happen in your heart and life right now that change you on the inside so that you can be filled with inexpressible and glorious joy right now. That he can remove the selfishness that's in your heart right now that's keeping you from joy, that's ruining your relationships. He can change your prejudiced heart right now. That the heart that you have that is frustrated over what's going on in culture, you can still have love to those around you because God wants to dawn on you right now and change you right now. Um, I'm going to close with this uh, last example. I believe one of the things Peter wants us to see is just how great a gift and treasure we have um, in Jesus. And so uh, I, I fact-checked this. You guys are welcome to fact-check this if you want. But in 2007, uh, this really amazing thing happens. There was a guy um, that was at a yard sale and bought just a little rolled-up replica of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, it, was, it was made to look old and tattered uh, like it was a real thing. But anyway, he got it for 10 bucks at a yard sale, hung it up in his garage, and for 10 years it hung in his garage. Eventually he gets married, and they're combining houses, and you guys all know what happens at that moment. Uh, husband and wife are like, okay, what's going what's gonna to stay and what's going to go? And so the wife looks at the Declaration of Independence, and she's like, it's out of here. So he rolls it up, and uh, he, he drops it off at a, a downtown thrift store in Nashville, Tennessee. Two days later, a man named Michael Sparks, no relation to Tony Sparks. No, I was waiting. Okay, it didn't work for a service either. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I need help. Okay, so uh, Michael Sparks uh, picks this up for $2.48, takes it home, starts showing his friends. One of his friends is like, that doesn't look like they made it to look old. That looks like that's maybe kind of old. He's like, no, you're crazy. They take it to a, like a road show where they have somebody uh, look at it and verify that this is one of only 200 copies of the Declaration of Independence that was commissioned by John Quincy Adams, Adams himself in 1820. He takes it to auction. It sells for four, over $400,000. That new story, he's like a pretty good thrift, right? Like all of you guys are going to go to the thrift stores after this and uh, so anyway, that news story breaks in Nashville, and guess who heard about the story? <laughs> the guy that originally had it in his garage, right? Can you imagine the conversation he and his wife would have had <laughs> about that? Um, that guy's never going to throw another thing away again, ever. But um, so the, he had no idea, but for 10 years, hanging on his wall, he had the, one of the 200 copies that was worth $400,000, and I think what Peter is reminding us of, just giving us a perspective, saying, yes, for a little while you will go through all kinds of trials. But keep in mind that, that is, it pales in comparison with the, with the inheritance, with the eternal rewards that God has promised for you. So hang on, hold steady, take heart. There is joy ahead. Amen, church? Amen. I love that. So uh, we're going to close the service. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And uh, this is just the beginning. We're going to unpack um, the rest of this letter together in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to close the service this way. This Sunday marks the beginning of a new season, a new school year. Um, we want to pray a prayer of blessing um, over you and over each of our families. Um, the idea of a blessing...
is something we see in the Bible quite often. In fact, in the first two verses that we read, uh, Peter said, may, may um, what does it say? Uh, grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's a prayer of blessing. He's saying, may God bless you with peace and with joy. And so um, there's another example of a prayer of blessing in the Old Testament. And here's what it says in Numbers chapter 6. This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the people. Say to them, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Um, God wants to bless you. Do you believe that? That God wants to pour out his favor on you. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stand and we're going to pray for our families. We're going to pray for you. Uh, if you are here as a family, I would encourage you maybe to, to circle up, gather up, grab each other. Um, if you are not here with anybody else, you are a part of our family, and we're glad that you're here. Those watching online as well, grab your family, circle up, and we're going to pray. And I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing. Uh, if you want, you can reach out your hand, uh, symbolically saying, I receive. God, yes, please pour your blessing on my life. And uh, let's pray together. God, I thank you so much that you, you present yourself and you reveal yourself as a God who blesses. And God, your blessing goes generations. You say, God, that you will bless this generation and you will bless the next generation. Your word says that you will bless to the thousandth generation that's a lot of generations that's a lot of blessing so god we we receive that today we receive that in hope that you want to bless us god you want to sustain us you want you are with our kids you will bless them as they go to school and as they learn however that looks god you will be their sustainer and their guide god whatever our future looks like you will bless you will sustain you are god so we ask for your blessing on our families, on our teachers, on our leaders, on our law enforcement, on those who are leading the way in diversity and unity and equality. God, we ask for you to bless us, God, as we turn to you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.